<clears throat> we are, uh, if you're visiting with us, we're, we're uh, working through the book of Ephesians uh, together, and uh, we're, we've made it up to Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. You can, you can open, open up uh, your Bible to that if you want to. Um, we're getting into we're getting into uh, where Paul begins to describe why wh- why and what he's uh, praying for the church. And let me just read it. Let me just read. Uh, well, you know what? I'm just going to read uh, one fifteen through eighteen, even though I know we won't get through uh, more than uh, the, two, the two verses today. But therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Stop there. Uh, Before we even really uh, get into what we're going to talk about today, I just wanted to mention that that the the verses... uh, what Paul ends up praying about here, starting the prayer actually starts in verse 17, but what he ends up praying about here flows out from what we just looked at last week, and uh, well, actually, the whole thing, this whole first chapter, it, it flows together perfectly. You have to; it's not a bunch of separate different things he's trying to teach or show, show them. It is it is one constant flow. It makes perfect sense if you see the reality and order of what Paul is saying, and. And what Paul is saying here is no different than what Paul is saying in any of his epistles, anywhere. It's, it becomes, once you begin to see it more clearly, it becomes that you see the same thing here and there and here and there. And what that is, in a nutshell, is this. You have a declaration of a finished work of God in Christ, and then you have the Spirit of God revealing that work of God in Christ, a finished work to your very soul, causing you to apprehend, apprehend, know, walk in, abide in, live by, live in that which God has already done. And that's what, you know, that's what Ephesians chapter 1 presents us with. It's always that way. First you have, now we've looked at this, I'm just reviewing here a little bit, but first you have Paul describing the finished work of God in Christ. Remember, verse 3, notice the tenses on all these verses, in Him we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Verse 5, in Him we have adoption, which is sun placement, placement in the sun. That was a promise throughout all of, all of Israel's history. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption. Verse 9, in Him we have the mystery revealed and made known. In verse 10, in Him we've come to the administration of the fullness of time, where all things have been gathered up or summed up in Christ. Verse 11, in Him we have, we have obtained an inheritance. And we've, looked at, we've broken those down in, in the weeks past and we've looked at those in some detail. It's not my uh, intention uh, to, to do that again today. But then last time, which was two weeks ago, because Terry was here last weekend, but the week before that, we looked at verses 12 through 14. And there we saw that the very thing that Paul had specifically told them uh, that had been given to them in Christ... Uh, that, that that must become a reality, an experience, and a possession, so to speak, of the soul through the spirit of promise. We looked at that, but I want, you to, you wanna, I want you to look at the order here. I want you to take note of an order, because what you see here, 
is that the prayer that we're going to get into, just begin to touch on the, the reality of prayer today, the prayer makes perfect sense out from this order. First you have the, the finished work of God in Christ. Then you have the reality of what the Spirit is, 12 through 14. The Spirit is the guarantee of our experience of that. And then that leads right into the reason that Paul is praying. Therefore, I pray what? I pray that you get more of what something you don't have. No, I pray that your eyes would be opened to see the reality, to walk and to know the reality of what you do have. So the prayer flows right out of A, the finished work of God in Christ, B, what the Spirit is, is now doing in the, in the body, uh, and then C, you have this prayer. So, again, verses 12 through 14, you have the Spirit described as the guarantee that we who have received an inheritance will experience, will know that inheritance. We who have been redeemed, as he says, will know and experience that, that redemption. It's one thing to have something finished in Christ. It's, it's another thing altogether to have that thing finished and established in your, in your heart. The first having been put away. The second having been established. And so, what we have here is what we find, again, all over the New, the New Testament. We have the finished work of the cross. And then we have the work of the Spirit of God making what God has finished an actual experience and possession of your soul and not just another chapter in your doctrinal stance. Not just another chapter in your systematic theology, but, but an actual reality of your soul, a possession of your soul. So we, the purchased possession, have been given the full inheritance. He just said that in the beginning. We are the redeemed of the Lord. He says that. In Him we have an inheritance. In Him we are redeemed. And yet the spirit of promise has been given to you as the guarantee, the certainty that you can and will possess and know, realize, experience the reality of what has been given. And we broke that verse down last week, but Paul's telling the church in verses 12 through 14 that those who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, have come to faith, are sealed with the very spirit of promise the Spirit who Jesus says will guide you into all truth. He will, he will uh, teach you all things. He will take the things of me and reveal them unto you. 1 Corinthians 2.12 The Spirit is given so that you might know the things that have been freely given to you by God. That is what this Spirit of promise is doing. What have they received? They've received an inheritance. What's the Spirit doing? The Spirit, the spirit is the guarantee of the possession and experience of that inheritance working in you. And I'm reviewing here, but again, I'm doing it on purpose. I'm not just doing it so that you'll remember what we talked about last time. I'm doing it so that you understand that the prayer that begins in verses 15 through 18 and 19 here are the natural progression of what he's already stated. The prayers that, 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 he, that we're going to start looking at a little bit this morning are, are really Paul just requesting God to do the very thing that he just said the Spirit longs to do. Paul begins asking God to do the very thing he describes in verses 12 through 14 by showing us the realities that he says are ours in verses 3 through 11. So he's not changing topics here. It's one flow. That's what I'm trying to get across. It's A, B, C. A, the finished work. B, the spirit of the guarantee. And then C, the, the prayer that the spirit would then show us what God has done. So anyway, let's get into our verses uh, specifically. I got a little ahead of myself there, but 
I wanted, before I got into talking about what we're going to get into this morning, I, want you to see, I just wanted you to see the order of this thing. It makes perfect sense. He didn't give you a work to finish. He gave you a finished work that He's trying to reveal in you. Do you understand? I say that because so much of the church is out there trying to finish His work. He finished the work. Father planned it. The Son finished it. The Spirit now reveals it. You abide in it and make it manifest in the earth. That's the order. It's always the order. If we don't realize that, then we're the ones out there trying to finish the work. Rather than become an expression and a manifestation of a work He finished. So, Ephesians 1.15 Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. That's, uh, that's verse 15. It's difficult you know, uh, for me sometimes to decide how much time to spend on uh, each word or phrase. I, I have a hard time moving past anything quickly when I uh, fear that foundational realities might be misunderstood. You know, whenever you have wrong presuppositions, you always have wrong conclusions. You know, whenever you have a faulty foundation, you've got a messed up house. It doesn't matter how nice the windows are. So, I wanted to say a little bit about faith and love. Faith and love are, are frequently put together and used by Paul as sort of a, sort of a measuring stick or a barometer uh, by which he gauges a church's spiritual growth in the Lord. You'll find him saying things like this. Galatians 5.6 For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Ephesians 3.17 I pray that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you be rooted and grounded in love. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 I thank God that your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. 1 Timothy 1.5 The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and an unfeigned faith. Colossians 1.3 We give thanks to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. And the reason, the reason that this is something of a spiritual barometer for Paul is because faith and love are quite simply the mind of the Lord and the nature of the Lord working in a believer. Faith and love, you could put it this way, are the inworking and the outworking of the one who is their life. You could say that one is his mind, the other is his nature. So really Paul is looking at the church and he's looking for what he later says in Ephesians chapter 4. He's looking for the measure of the, of the stature of the fullness of Christ that is, that is working in this in each believer, and that is working in the corporate, corporate vessel, which is the church. So contrary to what I, what I once thought, probably what I once preached, faith is not what you and I believe about something. Let's say that again. Faith is not what you believe about something. Faith is not a belief system. It's not a trust. It's not a hope. Somebody says, I have faith that God can part the sea. Well, see, that's not faith. That's... That's your belief. It may be true, but it's still something you believe He can do. Somebody says, I have faith that God will put a person of integrity in the White House. Well, that's nice. But that's not faith. That's hope. You see, that's, that's hope. That's a wish. It's something you'd like to see happen. Somebody says, I have faith that God will provide for my needs. Well, that's nice too, but that's trust. That's trust. That's not faith. Faith is not belief. Faith is not trust. Faith is not hope. 
Faith is faith. There's your definition. No, faith, faith is the mind of Christ working in your soul. Faith is the view of spiritual reality that is present to the eyes of the heart subsequent to the revealing of Christ. You could say it like that. Faith is a, faith is a spiritual seeing, a beholding that is given to you by the Spirit. More than that, faith is actually the Spirit's beholding. It's His view being wrought in your heart. That's faith. It's not your understanding of a spiritual thing. It's the Spirit's understanding of all things being given to you through the opening of the eyes of your heart, the opening of the eyes of your understanding. So faith is when His mind in you by new birth begins to bring you into His view. That's when you come to faith. That's when you grow in faith. You see? And of course, that necessarily brings forth the reality and substance of, of, of what is, as it says in Hebrews 11, verse 1, faith, faith then becomes the substance of what is not seen. It brings forth the evidence, the evidence and the substance of what is unseen. I mean, sure, how, how could it not be so? If you come to share His view, His mind, His heart, His perspective, His reality, if that's working in your heart, if that is the present reality of your soul, how are you going to live contrary to that? How are you going to manifest something other than that or contrary to that? So Paul's saying in, in uh, Romans chapter 6, saying, you know, what the guys are saying to him, why don't we just sin all the more so that grace would abound? Paul says, you have no idea what you're talking about. How could you who have died to sin still live in it? See, for them it was a doctrine. For them it was a stance. Grace was, you know, God putting up with their shortcomings. No. Faith shows you that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Faith brings you to God's view. Faith is God's view being worked in your soul. And that's why ten times in the New Testament, the literal Greek reads the faith of the Son of God and not faith in the Son of God. Because it's actually His heart, His mind, His understanding, His view being wrought in your heart. And so, once that heart, that reality, that faith begins to work in your soul, I'm not talking about your belief system here, I'm talking about faith. Then you can walk by faith and not by sight. Then you can say, the second part of Galatians 2.20, the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Well, yeah, that makes sense. How are you going to live contrary to the reality that's working in your soul? You can't even do that in the natural. You can't, even, you can't even live contrary to your view of natural reality. I mean, can you make yourself scared of a lion that you don't even see? Or, you know, can you, can you uh, feel angry towards a person that you don't even know to exist? You know, you live according to whatever view of spiritual reality is working in you. And you become a manifestation of whatever view of truth is working in your soul. You could say it this way, you become a manifestation of whatever reality is being written on your, on your heart by the finger of God. In other words, you live by faith. Whatever measure of faith is really there, then you will live by that measure of faith. And what comes out from faith is always the fragrance of what faith sees. And when that faith is the faith of the Son of God, then what faith brings out from you is love, is the very nature of the Son of God. You see what I'm saying? I'm kind of tripping over my words here, but that's why it's Paul's spiritual barometer. 
Faith was the mind of Christ working in them, bringing forth love, which is the nature of Christ. And, and you know, and love, love has probably even more misconceptions and, and carnal notions surrounding it than, than does faith. You know, you put 20 people in a room and ask them what love is, you're going to have 20 different responses. And that's because the natural mind defines everything for itself until it sees Christ as the definition of all spiritual things. I often say this, how many natural minds do you have in front of you? Well, that's the exact number of definitions you'll have for faith or love or glory or truth or heaven or fellowship or hope or transformation until you come to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God. Until faith is something not that you are trying to figure out or believe in but it is something given to you by the very Spirit of the living God. Until it is something that God works in your soul. So, just like faith, love. Love's not there for you to define either. Love is the nature of God that works in you by faith. We've talked about this before, but see, this is, this is exactly what remains in Christ. There's faith, which is His view working in your heart. There is hope, which is better translated expectation, which is the expectant realizing and progressive possessing or possession of what faith sees. And then there is love, which is the manifestation of all that Christ is. And the greatest of these is is the actual coming forth of the person. The greatest of these is when your soul actually bears the image and the fragrance and the expression of the person. In Him there abide these three, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is the very person coming forth. But again, love isn't, isn't there to be defined by whatever we think is nice. Love isn't good deeds, Christmas cards, hugs, and homeless shelters. I'm not against any of those things, obviously. Those of you who know me know that I, my wife and I did homeless ministry for years. But I, what I'm saying is this. Love will never be defined by works. But works can be the outflow of love. Love will never, can never be defined by works, but works can be the outworking of love. You can't look at a work and say, there's some love. You can't do that. You have to first know love, and then you might see some works of love. You can't look at a work and say it was motivated by love. How in the world could you possibly know that? Do you know how many quote-unquote loving things I do, just myself, that are that are motivated by slimy, selfish gain? That's just me, a pastor. You know? Do you know how many dead religions busy themselves with quote-unquote loving acts? Is that love? How do you know? See, you can't, you can't define love by works. But when you come to know Him who is love and abide in Him who is love, then you might find works becoming the natural outworking and outflow of Him who is love. I'm not trying to be tricky with my semantics here. I'm just trying to say it like it is. This is exactly what John says in 1 John. Most of that entire epistle is about the person of love working through the ones who abide in Him. That's what 1 John's about. I'll just read a few verses. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Anyone, if we love one another, God, this is verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. Verse 16, 
we know and have believed that uh, the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And the temptation is when you read these verses, again, is, is to define love based on works, on what you already think love looks like, on what you already think love is. And then you either have pride on one hand or condemnation on the other hand. I'm doing well loving or I'm not doing well loving. But love is not something that you do. Love is something that He is. And it works in you by faith. Love is not really defined, if you can hear this. Love is not really understood by the thing done, but by the one who is doing it. Through you, in you. God is love. And the one who is abiding in God can perhaps bring forth His nature, which is love. Does that make sense? I'm trying to say you can't just say that that's love or this is love or that. Love is a person. Love is a nature. Love works out from you by faith when the mind of that person becomes the operating reality of your heart. So what Paul is saying here is a kind of an introduction to why he's praying for these for these folks in Ephesus. He's more or less saying that I know I know that uh, God has begun a genuine work of the Spirit in you, and therefore I'm praying for more. I've, I've heard that faith and love are working in and through you, and I, and I realize this to be a work of God and not a man-made religion or, or self-willed discipline. Therefore, I'm praying that the Spirit of God would work even more of this in you. You see, that's, that's his motivation here. But to be very clear, when Paul is looking for faith and love in a church... He's not running down a checklist looking at doctrines and good deeds. He's looking to see whether the one who was in them by new birth was working in them according to his mind and his nature. Faith and love. Quite a difference. And whenever Paul found that, he rejoiced. Whenever Paul got word from Timothy or Titus that faith and love were working in a certain congregation, he rejoiced and he almost always goes right into prayer that God would just keep that work going. That him who began that good work would continue it. So, understanding uh, a little bit of that, let me just say that again. I feel like I said a mouthful and I'm not sure if, if you're hearing what I'm saying. Faith is the mind of the Lord working in you. It's not... It's not you changing your mind about things you believe. It's the actual mind of the Lord working in your soul. Love is not you changing your behavior. Love is the very nature of God working out from your soul by faith. Galatians 5.6 Circumcision, uncircumcision, both of them mean nothing. What means everything is faith working out through love. The goal of our instruction, 1 Timothy, is love from an unfeigned faith. So faith and love are the mind of the Lord and the nature of the Lord working through you by His Spirit. Not something you do. Something He is that works through you. Yes, you become the manifestation of it. You become the vessel through which the treasure is seen. You become the one in, in whom He does all of this and through whom it can be manifested to the world. Faith isn't your theology, your belief system, your hope, or your trust. 
Faith is a God-given spiritual view of spiritual reality that works in you and through you the very nature of the one who is in you. And that is love. It's about as clear as I can be. But understanding now a little bit that love is not defined by works, but rather works are defined by love, we can, we can talk a little bit about what love looks like in, in the body of Christ. Paul, Paul was obviously aware that love was working in them. There must have been something he recognized there. How did he recognize it? How is it known? Well, you've probably read in Scripture um, verses that say things like, love is made manifest in the laying down of your life. Uh, I'm sure you've heard love, uh, you know, we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Both of those statements are absolutely true. And, and yet both of them have to be understood in the context of the finished work of the cross. Or like all things, they come to mean to us whatever we want them to mean. You see, laying down your life for your brother or sister is not just sacrificing things you want or time or money you have in order to help somebody. I know that sounds really nice and I'm not saying anything against that. But, but, but honestly, generally... We only really make sacrifices that have some sort of payoff on the other side. Isn't that true? The natural man with our self-consumed heart generally only lays down something in order to eventually pick up something even better. In, in, his, in his light, when I see clearly, I see that kind of thing working in me. Making temporary sacrifices for long-term rewards. You might forfeit something of ours but even the proud feeling of having done so is often more important to us than the thing that we forfeited. And you can make your own personal application there. I won't start pointing people out. My point isn't to be harsh or anything like that. My point is just to say that laying, the laying down of our life is, just, is, is much more than just giving away time, money, or possessions for a good cause. The laying down of our life in the body of Christ is exactly that. It is the laying down of our life. Not parts of it, but the very self of it. Not just some money, sometimes some possessions. It's the loss of our life in order to be used as a vessel of expression for His. That's how you lay down your life. It has to do with allowing the Spirit of God to work the reality of the cross in you. To the measure that we face our end in Him, then we can be used by Him as a vessel of another, as a vessel of honor, as a vessel of love. And sure, that works out in, in, in us in, in ways that are visible and tangible and helpful. But, it, but it's a bigger reality than just laying down your preferences or your, your agenda, or your plans, your dreams. It's the laying down of you so that love, the person, is freed up to administer himself to his body you can hear what I mean by that. It's only when the you is lost that you can love your neighbor as yourself. It's only in coming to see that you have no life but Christ and that Christ is all and in all and that you are a vessel of Him or you're nothing at all. It's only in that view of reality that your neighbor actually becomes, in a manner of speaking, part of yourself. Part of yourself. I'm not trying to be mystical or weird here. I'm, I'm simply saying the more we know the reality of the cross, the more we begin to see what Paul's talking about in scriptures like 
uh, Romans 12, uh, verse 5. We being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we have all been made to drink into one Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.17 Those who have been joined to the Lord have become one Spirit. Colossians 3.11 In Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. See, when you come to know the reality of salvation, you see you've lost a life in order to gain another. In order to be filled with another. And it's only in losing the one who always seeks itself that the other can actually work in you and work through you and be free to love in and through you. That love would work in you. You see, that's what love is. The one who is in you now working through you his nature. And that nature is patient and that nature is kind and that nature seeks not its own gain and that nature keeps no record of wrongs. Those aren't things that you learn how to do. Those are, those are things that He is. Those are things that He is. A person can't teach another person how to love. That's like teaching a rock how to float. That's like, you know, teaching a beach ball how to sink, you know. These, these are not things that you do. These are things that He is that work in you and through you by His Spirit. God is love. And the more that faith sees that reality, the more you begin to comprehend that, that each one of us shares the same life and is quite literally a member of one another. As Paul says, you are individually members of one another. So you have a hand and a foot and an eye, all parts of one body, all partaking of one life. And it's then and only then that love See, it's only then that you can actually love your neighbor as yourself. You can only love someone as yourself when you come to see them as part of yourself. One spirit, one body. Christ all and in all. Does that make sense? And, and of course, yes, that works its way, that is expressed, that works out. But it's always realization before manifestation. It's always faith working through love. It's always one life laid down, now bringing forth the life of another. We have to know ourselves to be one body, one spirit, before we can love our neighbor as ourselves. So anyway, getting back into Ephesians, that's what Paul, that's what Paul was glad to see. That's what Paul heard was happening in, in Ephesus. A genuine work of the Spirit. And therefore Paul began to pray. Back to Ephesians 1.15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So again, just to lay out the order. We have this finished work that he's already described. Then the promised work of the Spirit in us, guaranteed. And now Paul says that he recognizes the reality of the work of the Spirit already beginning to bring forth faith and love. This one who is in them, you know, born from above. This one who is their life. Colossians 3, verse 3. Whenever Christ, who is your life, is revealed. Christ, their life. The one who is in them. He begins to see that this one who is in them is actually beginning to be formed in them. Galatians 4.19 
Not that they're getting better at imitating Him, but He's actually getting formed in them. His mind. His nature. And, and hearing of that. Hearing of that by some messenger or whatever. Then, He gets on His knees and He starts praying to God. Oh God, there is a, there is a real work going on in, in this body of believers. Therefore, I ask you, Give them even more of a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the true knowledge of God. Now that I see this isn't just a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo, this isn't a bunch of discipline of the flesh, harsh treatment of the body, self-made religion, Colossians 2, 22, 23. This is faith. This is the mind of the Lord bringing forth the nature of the Lord. And every time it says the same thing in the Colossians. That's why Paul prays in Colossians 1 for the church in Colossae. Having seen their faith and love, he prays unceasingly for them. You know, we'll get into more of the prayer next week. But, uh, but, he, but he says, you know what? This one who is in them by new birth is beginning to work in them. This one who is in them by new birth, his mind, you know, as it says in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, we have the mind of Christ. The mind of the Spirit. Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 7. Starting to work in them. Starting to put off the old, put on the new. It's bringing forth something of the new. What's it bringing forth? It's bringing forth the nature of the one who is in them. Love. I'm seeing Paul's. I can just see picture Paul saying this. If you're telling me Timothy that faith and love are genuinely working in this body, then I cannot stop thanking God for that and praying for an ever increased reality to work in and through this body. There's the motivation behind this prayer here. The thing that God has done is first laid down. The thing the Spirit is doing is then described. The thing that He's seen working in them is mentioned so that He can pray that it would always and forever continue unto the increase of Christ in His body. And we'll get more into the actual prayer uh, next week. But I want to I just say a, a couple things about, about prayer about prayer itself. Paul says here, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That's similar to uh, several other scriptures where Paul speaks of uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, prayer without ceasing. Or uh, Colossians 1.9, I do not cease praying for you. He says that things like that uh, quite often. Quite often. And quite often, verses like that are, are used uh, to put religious monkeys on people's backs. And I'd just like to say, let me just say this. I remember when I first started seeing the cross. Uh, you could say it like this. I remember when faith began to have its work in my heart. And incidentally, that was decades after I became a Christian. Uh, it took me a while to, to humble my proud, carnal mind and ask the Spirit of God to teach me. But... Uh, at that time, uh, having been a believer, you know, for a number of years, uh, I had, had for many years disciplined myself to spend a significant amount of time in prayer every day. Uh, you know, what I called intercessory prayer. And, uh, and when I started uh, to see the cross, I began to see that so much of my prayer life uh, was not much more than, than me doing one of, one of these three things. Number one, I, I was telling God what I'd like to see Him do. Number two, I was telling God the things that I thought He wanted me to say. 
And number three, I was asking God to help me get better at all of the multitude of ways that I stunk. And, and maybe some of you are saying, what's wrong with that? Well, the more I saw the truth, the more I saw that everything was wrong with that. First of all, prayer wasn't just my way of getting God to do things I wanted to see. He, he isn't a vending machine in heaven that requires a buck twenty-five worth of prayer and fasting. Second of all, he didn't write the Bible so that I would methodically repeat it back to him in the form of prayer. Third, I came to see that he was not remotely interested in making me better at anything. Hello? On the contrary, he was interested in his increase in me and through me becoming my decrease. Christ formed in me, not Jason acting like Christ. What a difference. And I don't know about you, but for me, that put a serious flat tire on my prayer life. And for a time, I, I, remember, I remember simply telling God, like it says in Romans 8, I know not how to pray as I ought. I, you know, worse than that, it was more like, I don't even think I know what prayer is. Well, that might sound pathetic, and I, I suppose that is pathetic, but... I actually believe the Lord loves hearing stuff like that. Lord, I don't even know what prayer is. You know, it, it's, it's, it's from that point of view that God can actually begin to show you something. As, you know, as long as you think you know, you know not as you ought. As long as you think you see, your blindness remains, he says to the Pharisees. It's the same thing about everything. There's no, there's no basics that are just a given that everyone understands. Well, I realized I didn't understand prayer. When I finally began to turn my heart and say, God, I know not how to pray as I ought. It's like a little bit of room opens up in, in, in your heart for Him to show you some truth. And at the time, I felt like I was backsliding, just to be honest with you, in my, in my spiritual discipline. And indeed I was because spiritual discipline is a man-made concept. <laughs> and in fact, it's an, it's an oxymoron. Uh, it, it's a contradiction in terms. As though your discipline can make you spiritual. How in the world am I supposed to discipline myself to, to do something that the Spirit alone can do in me and through me? What does that even mean? I don't want to step on anyone's theology. I'm just saying this. You can't make yourself more spiritual through any discipline. I don't care. I mean, and you're, talking to, you're listening to someone who, who tried that for ten years in, in some pretty extreme ways. Discipline only ever affects the natural man, but the whole point of the cross is the putting away of the natural man so that Christ can come forth. But I'll leave that alone. Over the next couple of years, the Lord, in rewiring my understanding of the gospel and understanding of the cross, began rewiring my understanding of prayer. It wasn't, it wasn't overnight by any means, but, but it was little by little I began to see that prayer became to Paul so much, so much more than a discipline he made himself do because he was supposed to care for the churches. After all, he planted them. No. Prayer to Paul became very much like breathing. 
What I mean by that is this. Prayer became to Paul simply the mind of Christ naturally working in him. The burdens and petitions and desires that were, in fact, the Lord's. When Paul prayed without ceasing, it wasn't because he disciplined himself to do so. It actually had nothing to do with discipline. Does your mind have to discipline itself to do your will? Philippians 2.13 It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Well, when the mind of Christ begins to work in your soul, you find your heart longing after petitioning God for the things that are out from Him. And so Paul can say in, in Philippians chapter 1, God is my witness how greatly I long for you with the very affections, in the Greek, bowels, inward parts of Jesus Christ. Does that sound like a discipline to you? And, and this I pray. Then he goes on to say why he prays for them. Well, see, there's an order there. First the bowels, first the affections of Christ working in Him, and prayer becomes, becomes, not instantaneously, but it becomes the, the breathing out, the longing after, the calling out for what was already working within. It wasn't burdensome. It wasn't a spiritual exercise. Prayer became to Paul a participation in the life and the heart of God. And so it is meant to be in you and I. Because prayer becomes a participation in the life and the heart of God, even, even apart from petition, it becomes in us a 24-7 union and communion with the living God. Prayer without ceasing. But I'm speaking specifically here with regards to petition because that's the context of our verse. Paul's petitions weren't his good ideas about what would be nice for God to do. They weren't his ideas at all. They weren't spiritual disciplines. They were not repeating back to God the things that God told him to say. They weren't requesting that Paul that God fix Paul. Prayer was quite simply the mind of the Lord coursing through the very soul of this man. The man who said, for me to live is Christ. The man who said, I'm, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ now lives in me. And what comes out from me, whether it's actions, thoughts, emotions, prayers, are all by the faith of the Son of God. Prayer is just one of those things that come out from Him who is your life. And so prayer was something in him, to him that was, quote, in the name of Jesus. Now maybe you know this, but in the name of Jesus isn't something you say after you're done praying your own will. <laughs> praying in the name of Jesus is praying in His name, His nature, His life, His heart, His mind, His burden, His life. That's what that word name in, in, in the, uh, in, to, to an Israelite in the first century would have meant. Sum total of one's attributes in existence. The name. Jesus says of the Father, Father, I have manifested your name to the world. What did he do? Just write it down and show everyone? No. Life. Nature. He manifested that. The name of God is the, is the sum of all that he is. And you pray in that name only when that name is formed in you. You pray out from that name when that name has put your name away. 
you can hear what I mean by that. It's not a tagline at the end of your desires that ropes God into giving you what you want. It's a person working in your heart out from whom you can then pray like breathing the very heart of God unceasingly. Unceasingly. Prayer becomes the mind of the Lord. It becomes the bowels of Jesus Christ. The the inward parts of Jesus Christ bringing your heart into agreement with His will. And then it can be without ceasing because that life, that name, that heart never ceases operating in your soul. He prays. I just wanted to say that. I just wanted to... I kind of wanted to get into the prayer today. I looked at those three words, faith, love, and prayer, and I said, you know, I better just spend a little time on that before we get into the actual prayer. I don't like to just skip over, skip over those words. Christ becomes the reality and definition of all three. Faith, His mind working in you by the Spirit. The hearing of faith, which is a work of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 3, you can read that in the beginning. The hearing of faith is given by the Spirit. And then love. Love is the nature, the nature of Christ, the nature of God that works in you, that's in you by new birth, but works in you through you by faith. And then prayer. Prayer is the, is the very will and desire and heart of God now being breathed out of your soul back to Him as you line up, as your heart, as your soul lines up with His desires, His burdens, His positions. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we are. So anyway, we'll, we'll stop there.